0: Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Elizabeth Stoko. She's a professor of social interaction at Loughborough University studying conversation analysis. The discussions that we have usually seem to flow seamlessly. That's until you transcribe and scientifically analyze them to show up all of the pauses, filler words, mistakes, stutters and half-finished sentences. Then the fact that we can communicate at all seems to become a miracle. Expect to learn what not to say on a first date, why the word like has taken such a hold over people's mouths, just how big of an impact language has on our behavior, why the words that people say often are the most important contributor when determining our opinion of them, what Elizabeth learned from hostage negotiations, whether our use of technology and smart speakers is changing our language, and much more. Don't forget that if you are listening, there is a copy of the Modern Wisdom reading list available for you right now for free. You can go and get yours by going to chriswillx.com books. It's a list of 100 of the most interesting and impactful books that I've ever read. You can go and get yours right now. chriswillx.com slash books. In other news, this episode is brought to you by the 6-Minute Success Journal. If you're focusing on work for a period of time and you're looking to up your productivity, work on efficiency, start to plan your days out, do a little review at the end of them, this is an unbelievable solution. By blending practice-proven mindfulness exercises with productivity-boosting strategies, this is not only a work planner but also a mindfulness planner, and it's helped more than 200,000 individuals to achieve their goals not only more consistently but also more calmly If you're not planning your day, you cannot make sure that the things that you intend to do will get done. And if you're not reviewing after the end of the day, you don't know if your strategies worked well. This is an awesome, simple three minutes in the morning, three minutes in the evening solution that can help you to get yourself to where you need to and get 15% off everything site-wide by going to bit.ly slash diary wisdom. That's bit.ly slash diary wisdom. If you're in the UK, use the code MW15. And if you're in the US, you can just search on Amazon Amazon for the six minute success journal and use the code 15 minutes that's one five minutes at checkout to get your 15% discount. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You are not eating enough fruit and vegetables in your diet and you know it, and this is going to help. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. It's NSF certified for sports in the US, meaning that Olympic athletes can use it, and the recipe has been updated 53 times over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient so that you know you are getting the highest quality that you can. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. You can also get a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 59 days, and if you don't like it, they will give you your money back. Head to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. That's athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by... Wondrium. Wondrium is focused on helping you become a better version of yourself. You can explore audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors, documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you, and video tutorials that will help you learn new hobbies like photography, cooking, crafting, and health and wellness. All of Wondrium's content is world-class and credible, presented by experts who all know their stuff. I just watched a program from the great courses called Understanding Inventions That Change the World, which explores the history and basic principles behind everything from the Roman aqueducts to the telescope and nuclear power and the internet and a lot more. Also, you can get unlimited free access for two weeks if you go to wondrium.com slash modernwisdom. That's wondriu mcom slash slash modernwisdom. An unlimited free trial for 14 days. You can watch as much as you want. And if you want to stick about after that, there is 20% off the annual plan. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Elizabeth Stokoe What's your problem with asking people how are you?
1: <laughs> I have a problem with people how they are, but it is a very interesting thing to examine as it unfolds in real conversations in real time in different settings. Why? Hmm. So, hi, how are you, fine, how are you is a really common way in which conversations start. It's a kind of no problem, very mundane routine way in which conversations typically start between people who know each other fairly well. and those how are you's can sound like they're just filler talk, that they're not really doing anything very much, that people kind of lie in response. They say, fine, how are you? Not, not, you know, my life is horrendous. They don't do it at that point in the conversation. And so the fact is, when you see loads of those conversations starting in that way, it can just look like nothing special is happening. But when, once you start to contrast those with other kinds of conversations and the very start of them, you can start to see that that apparently pointless filler talk is actually telling you a lot about the kind of interaction this is that's about to happen so for example how do you convey i'm in a rush something's an emergency you stop people doing those how are you's and you say immediately oh did i just need to check did you leave the oven on um i've got some nice examples where people immediately start a conversation not with hi how are you but chris Liz. What what's the deal? And you can immediately see, hey, there's no how are you, so they're about to have a huge argument. Um and then I've got an, an amazing example where um a woman calls nine 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 um and in order to convey to the the dispatcher, somehow my life is in danger, but I need you to hear as hear that I'm talking to a. Fr- I need I need the person who might be actually threatening my life in the house to sound to hit to, to sort of hear, oh, they're talking to a friend then you do, those, you, you do those how are you and you hope that the person on the other end of the phone kind of catches on, which they do pretty quickly to, oh, this person is pretending to have a conversation with a friend by doing that thing that always happens at the start of a call, which is quite amazing to see. Most how calls that ones?
0: go to 999 are not somebody asking how are you and taking their time with stuff.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, so I've got some amazing data in which people are phoning up, um, having to convey to the person that they're talking to I'm, I'm in danger but they can't use those words because the person or the situation that they are in danger from is, is there as well um, so how does that happen without using any of the words people say things like I'd like to order a pizza for delivery how does the call taker hear that as a genuine request for help especially since actually one of the tasks that the say the police um call takers have to do is figure out um from all the all of the potential nuisance calls that they actually do get that do sound a bit like that how do you figure that out but they can figure it out pretty quickly
0: what is a better question to ask somebody than hi how are you
1: it depends what you what you want to do so i this this it's not that it's a bad question it's just that if it's there at the start of a conversation then probably it means that there's nothing urgent nothing pressing nothing no conflict about to happen. It can also be exploited by people. So I've also studied cold call sales, where you can see people saying things like, Hi, how are you? And and because generally we can recognise someone's voice when they do that kind of thing. If you don't recognize the voice, you're immediately on your guard because you're like, mm, I don't recognise the voice even from the start of this conversation. And so then what happens is that you don't get fine, how are you? You might get fine, and then nothing. <laughs> And if a salesperson's any good, they're hearing, oh, this person doesn't want to do small talk with me and they just cut to the chase. Whereas I've got some really cringeworthy calls where people still say, oh, and how's the weather? And you're like, this person's going, uh, (laughs) listen to me, I don't really want to have this conversation with you. So the the presence or not of how we use are, are just very interesting at the start, right from the opening sort of few seconds of a conversation. You can tell a lot.
0: Have you ever looked at those pre-recorded sales calls where it's hi how are you silence <laughs> yes i had in today and that sort of they've obviously tried to create a single-sided conversation with sufficient breaks in between as to hook someone in i can't believe that that's ever worked
1: i can't believe it either because people are really quick at figuring out that this isn't a, a human voice at the right pace at the right pitch even voices that are, um, you know, generated through some kind of com- algorithm, or that, or they're just, or, or actors are used to kind of put into some kind of chatbot, you can tell pretty quickly. Um, I don't know if there's there's a really nice um, case called Lenny the chat Lenny the chatbot, um, and Lenny the chatbot um, was developed by somebody who basically wanted to stop or, or just trap cold callers to his home. Um, on a loop of their own kind of making so so someone would phone the house and Lenny the chatbot would answer and Lenny the chatbot didn't have any kind of algorithms or anything it was just something like 16 phrases pre-recorded and then shuffled and it sounded like the voice of an elderly Australian man and so the person, the call caller, did think that they were talking to an elderly Australian man and they tried to make sense of what this guy was saying to them. And so, you know, how long could Lenny the chatbot keep someone in a conversation? So that was that was very nice. And people can go and there's endless recordings on, on YouTube. You can go and see how Lenny manages to keep people on on the line. And people are trying to get out, but they're like, oh, I can't really leave him now because he's, he sounds just like this old gentleman. <laughs> Yeah.
0: it seems like there's a particular satisfaction on the internet for watching scammers not saying that cold calling is the same as scamming but some people put it into a similar bucket there's uh, entire youtube channels dedicated to um really sophisticated computer white hat hackers that reverse the scammer cold calls and they tell them stuff like i know the, the address of the Um, building that they're calling from where they are and they sometimes do other stuff to them play around with their computer so that's it doesn't surprise me that Lenny the chatbot is he's like the uh, (laughs) nerfed version he's like the kiddies version of that so given the fact that you do uh, conversational analysis for a living just how much (laughs) are humans pushed and pulled around by language
1: a lot um, which makes it sound bad in a way like we're, we're kind of manipulating each other uh, all, all the time but everything gets done really through interaction um, even if we're not just talking about words we're talking about gestures and gaze and um, all the embodied things that go along with with words and it's the thing that kind of drives everything we we ask, we invite, we offer, we get help. We, we do a lot of things in everyday social life and our workplace lives through social interaction. And without being aware sometimes, and, but also, of course, sometimes really being aware, if, if you have that bristle, bristly feeling that someone's doing something that you're finding difficult, but you can't pin it down, sometimes they're the kinds of things that, for me, as a conversation analyst, I can transcribe and try to unpack what it feels like when you're really pushing for service when you like for example I've studied people calling their GP receptions um, and what does it feel like when you when somehow you're not being offered things that is probably the the person's job to offer you that thing what what does and if we we all feel that sense of like god I I feel like a burden I feel like I'm really pushing you to 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 give me some service and you can sort of start to unpack that so a, a really nice example is going into a cafe uh, getting your coffee or your tea, and saying, "Do you have Wi-Fi?" Yes, we do. So, uh, it can customers use it? Yes, they can. This is this is real. This is a field note, sort of scribbled down hastily after going into a cafe. It, um, and then eventually, the, the 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 cafe very sort of you know cool <laughs> cafe staff owner just sort of points at the code, which is painted in this very arty hipster way, right? At, that's like twelve foot high in the, on the wall, and you get the code. And so you really feel like, God, I really had to drag that out of you as though somehow you didn't understand that you have Wi-Fi wasn't a request for the code as well as it's not just a yes, no question. Whereas, you know, the the much nicer experience, which is also real, also scribbled down as a field note, was going into cafe. As your tea comes across the desk, the cafe uh, staff member says, oh, by the way, if you need the Wi-Fi, here's the code. And what's so nice about that is you feel really great about that person, the cafe. And it didn't involve things like, hey, what's your name? It didn't involve all of those more scripted sounding things that seem to have found their way into some types of service encounter. It's actually about maybe you need this thing and here it is, you don't even have to ask for it.
0: It's cutting off at the knees as well the amount of back and forth that's needed between the person that's serving, presuming that they need to be efficient and not waste their time having a five minute conversation about the Wi-Fi code. Just presuming that, look, if you need the code, it's up on – it's 12 feet on the wall painted on a piece of driftwood <laughs> or whatever. Um, That that helps. Yeah, it, yeah, another thing as well I've noticed, it seems like brevity or at least um, appreciating people's time, especially in the modern world, because everyone's so distracted by their devices that their time to actually do the things that they need to do now has become completely condensed down. Yeah. Um, I think that just trying to do things in the minimum – uh, amount of time for instance if if you're doing outreach to people my advice has always been that the message should be readable within the space of about 20 seconds especially if the person that you're trying to reach out to is someone that's of high repute right mm-hmm. like you they are very very busy and if you send them a huge essay that they've got to go through I think that your chances tend to decrease and that's kind of the same for you know, even my mum my mum's a perfectly pleasant person but she doesn't want to spend forever talking to the checkout cashier at the local shop
1: yeah yeah, I think the cafe example that I just gave is a nice example of how quickly you can make someone feel a bit warm towards you whilst getting getting needs potential needs met, but it's very, very short and very, very efficient. Um, I've also done some work when people are phoning the vet. Um, so this is a nice example of actually listening for what people want in this moment as well and whether or not you're able to do that. So case one someone phones up and says how much does it cost to get injections done from a new puppy and the vet receptionist trying to build rapport or i don't know you know just sound lovely on the phone is like oh what's your puppy called and there's there's this little delay and in my world delays of like 0.7 seconds is quite large and you might get victor (laughs) now that's someone who doesn't want to have a long conversation about the new puppy but but the call taker isn't really she's just going for it anyway. Like, oh, and and is it your first puppy? Yeah. It's <laughs> like you should be able to hear by now. They just want the price. And in fact in this particular call, it's almost like the sort of Star Wars credit that this this sales well, it's not even a salesperson. The reception just goes on and on and on. What we can do for you is and and in the end it's you know it's going nowhere. Whereas actually, you know, maybe at that point where you say, oh, what's your puppy called? And the person's like, oh, well, you know, we, some people are dying to talk about their new puppy. So can you be nimble enough and listen enough to actually think, right, this is someone to do that with because they're dying to do it. This is someone who just wants the information.
0: It's interesting thinking about the fact that people's words are one of the most um, direct insights that we have into their nature as a person. So yeah, actions are important or whatever, you know, like someone saying, uh, I hope the funeral was good whilst not being there isn't quite the same, but (laughs) someone's words and the way that they put them across to you when we're talking about someone and saying that they're rude or abrupt or nice or kind or caring or whatever, that Mm. forms a massive amount of our interpretation of that person and their personality overall.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have this... Thing. It's not a serious thing, um, I, I should say, but a, called like the conversation Ana- analytic personality diagnostic, which is not a serious personality tool. But the point is that when you're in a an, an interaction, a conversation with somebody, you don't sort of give them a questionnaire, check what kind of personality they are on some scale, if, if you believe in that kind of thing. Um, and then on the basis of what they score, they're an extrovert, an introvert, whatever they are, you then take the next turn. You have to be much faster than that all the time. And so exactly that you're you're kind of on what basis would you say someone is rude or or they seem warm or they were help? you know it, it's basically what they do and of course a lot of what you do is what you say so we do have this this sense of you know you can talk the talk but can you walk the walk and actions speak louder than words but in my world again you know a lot of what we do is what we say they're the same sorts of things so so what is being offensive a lot of the time it, it's not you know you don't do being offensive by punching somebody i mean that would be offensive but you you'd be offensive through your words um so what you do is is basically what a lot of people are using almost all the time to decide what kind of person you are i like
0: that reversal of the of the age-old wisdom of it's not about what you say it's about what you do but yeah you're right for the most part people aren't doing things they're saying things and Mm -hmm. if the broadest area under the curve is people just talking about stuff making sure that you talk about things in an appropriate manner to get the kind of response that you're looking for and to have the sort of impact that you hope for is really, yeah. really important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so um, how do you, f- for example, I've got this, This one of my categories is the, the idea of the first mover. Um, so parents can often be first movers. Which, and by that, I just mean that they take a problematic first turn and and then you can get trapped immediately in a conflict. So things like Oh I don't really like that jumper. <laughs> it's like wow, you know, if I said that to you mum dad, you'd be like, "Oh, I'm so offended," you know, and you and if you call them out on it, they're like, "Oh, I was just joking." So so you know, people can be quite challenging in their opening gambits and then somehow if you call them out on it, you're the problem by being offended rather than the person actually being offensive in the first in the first instance. Um so again, you know, lots of examples of that in email as well, you know, people will write you an email That that somehow is you immediately feel annoyed, but you can't say anything because, strangely enough, the sort of constraints around the way we interact with each other mean that it's actually quite hard to to just maybe be as direct. Back you have to let we we let a lot of things slide, don't we? All you know because otherwise you'd you'd just be angry all the time. (laughs) Is there something
0: about that? Is there something about the convention that when somebody sort of is that first mover and maybe decides to take a left turn out of the conversation to say something that's a bit that's got a bit of snidey topspin there is something that when you break the fourth wall and you go hang on a second that's that's a bit that's a bit unfair isn't it and Mm. if especially if you do it in a group and there's other people listening as well it's like the record needle scratching and everyone's like yeah in a way that the first mover being a dick didn't that's so strange.
1: Yeah, I mean, people's, you know, some people's entitlement to take that first turn on the basis that quite often people won't won't challenge them on it um, and, and because it's difficult to, it's really difficult to. So everything from, um, so again, going back to the patients calling their doctors, those kinds of conversations, Right, sometimes at the end of those conversations, they, they end in a very orderly way. So in that, hi, how are you, fine, how are you? The ends of conversations, when somebody is calling up as a service user the service provider provides a service and then the service user it's up to the service user to kind of say right this is over and they say thanks or thanks very much and then the service provider will say thanks and then bye-bye so it goes thanks thanks bye-bye really 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 commonly now in my lots of analysis of all of these patients calling their GPs occasionally what will happen is that the the service provider the receptionist will have you know, said something or other and said, you yeah, know, your prescription will be here and then they'll say, Thanks. And they are trying to end the call, but it's not really their place to go first. And what happens very typically after that is then the patient has to sort of jump back into the conversation and say, oh, 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 but so so who am I seeing? So so when? And so you've got the burden on the patient to get maybe the confirmation that they were after, but also push past the receptionist trying to end the call. And basically what you see in in those moments is just the just the pain the painfulness of withholding a thank you so the next time you're unhappy on a telephone call try not saying thank you at the end try try to not say thank you first and then if when the receptionist or the service provider says thanks to end the call try not saying thank you you'll feel really horrible so from 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 that sense of like it's very difficult to just not say thank you at the end of a call all the way through to how do you how do you be an ally how do you speak up if someone is being sexist racist whatever it, the ism prejudice might be and one of the one of the interesting things again i've done a lot of work on what counts as an ism which is different for different people and then what do you do in response and of course people will say what they would say in response to somebody being racist in a room but actually there's a whole range of things that people do and some of them are very tiny so some of them are things like if you're in a meeting and someone says something that is problematic in whatever way you may not say anything in that room because you're not the chair, you've, you're a junior, you can't, it's difficult. But what you might do is actually just look at, for a moment at someone, catch the eye of someone else in the room and know that they're seeing things in the same way that you are. So maybe you deal with it later. Um, so, so all the way through to doing a direct challenge and then seeing that ripple effect into the interaction. Um, and actually, one of, the, one of the most effective things that you can do when somebody is being problematic in lots of different ways is to just wait because actually, people will quite often back off their own thing, or they'll they'll do what we call self repair. They'll they'll sort of notice that people haven't immediately come back with it, mm-hmm. and they'll inspect their own thing and say, "Oh, but I didn't mean X," or "Oh, of course I didn't mean that other thing." So, and then again, you know, every t- every single time in conversation, you're deciding to say something or not say something, say something or not say something, and it's running fast. You know, the conversation is running really quickly, so it's it's one of the things that is really I think useful for people and I quite often use these sorts of materials in in workshops is actually see these sequences unfold where someone said something everyone in the room saying oh my god I can't believe they said that and this is what I would do and then you see how it actually unfolds and sometimes there's quite a gap between what people imagine they would do and what actually happens
0: what are the interesting insights that you've learned around silences and stuff in conversations that's something that on the podcast i had to get used to very early on that uh, there was a famous clip actually i'm not sure whether you saw it but you would, you'd be fascinated you can go back and watch it uh, elon musk went on lex friedman's podcast about six months ago and a clip went around the internet and did about a million plays and it was a 31 second pause after lex asked a question and before elon did and after a while it becomes comical they just sat in silence but elon he's asked how long is it going to be until we get to mars and elon sits and Thinks and thinks and thinks and thinks, but that ability to sit with silence is something that new podcasters really struggle with, and generally people overall do. So, why is silence so uncomfortable, and what are some of the interesting things that you've learned from studying silence in conversations?
1: So, my field of conversation analysis has, right from the start, is sort of been you know running for fifty years of so the thousands and thousands and thousands of conversations in all settings you can imagine have been recorded, transcribed, and we use a very technical system to transcribe, which will, you know, pinpoint exactly how long any silence, any gap or pause is. And turns those, hi, how are you, fine, how are you? You know, you're looking at about 100 to 200 milliseconds. So that, that's quite a pace of interaction. Um, one of the founders of the field um, said that a silence of 1.0, you know, like a complete, a whole second is is starting to be quite a delay. And you can even see that when uh, you know, so as soon as you see a conversation where there's a two second delay or three second delay, they're quite big delays. Now, of course, depending on whether you are, you can see each other, you're co-present or you're on the phone or you're writing, which is different on on something like, you know, WhatsApp. But those silences can sometimes be clear about what they're doing. So silence isn't typically an inert thing. You can show someone that you're thinking.
0: Like Elon did.
1: <laughs> yeah. and But even so, you know, there's there's a sort of... There's a, there's a point in time where that just gets too long. And I would say, you know, 31 seconds or something is, is a massive outlier for interaction. So the, the longest silence that I have got in any of my data is police interview with a suspect. It's 11.2 seconds. The police have asked a question that's really difficult for the suspect to answer because almost anything is going to be incriminating. And in the end, after 11.2 seconds, the suspect says, I really can't deal with that question, actually. And so they, they, you know, in the end, it doesn't work. But and it's interesting that you mentioned this, because just just today um, I was talking with a colleague about another really famous clip that you can go and look online, which was Charlie State interviewing Lady Gaga about seven, six or seven years ago. And it's something like um, he's asking her about Trump and she says she won't talk about it. And then there's this long silence and it's very it's very awkward to look at. And what's quite interesting is a, a year later, I happened to be doing a talk and it happened to be that the event was sort of hosted by Charlie State. And he asked the same question about these silences. And then he, he told this little story that that silence was actually 16 seconds long. And before they broadcast it, they cut it because it was so painful for viewers. They didn't want the viewers to have to sit through 16 seconds worth. So those long silences are a real breach. And and I suppose the fact that we see them as we can immediately pick up on that being a breach of of the sort of normal, typical pace at which interaction occurs, you know, we wouldn't see it as a breach if we didn't sort of tacitly know somehow, you know, about a sil about a second is already getting quite long, so mm. six is huge, and you know, eleven is massive, and thirty one is, you know, <laughs> that's a long, long, painful silence. Why is it painful?
0: What is it about the rhythm of conversation and the breaking of that rhythm that makes us feel like that? Ah nails on chalkboard thing
1: I think it's it's I mean I don't the 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 why is difficult but what I can say is that that what we see in interaction when we record it and transcribe it is simply that those lengths of delays don't happen so they're not in our daily experience so just for as a basic thing we're not used to regularly experiencing those length of delays because they just don't really happen so it's like what's going on immediately this is really strange it feels strange because it is strange quite simply empirically you know when you look at the data it is just weird yeah and unusual and the other thing is that we you know we tend to uh want to fill silences as well so we we we're we're constantly inspecting everything that everyone says to us as an analysis of what we did previously. So if I ask you a question and you don't answer for thirty one seconds, I'm think I'm, you're starting to think, do I need to redesign the question? Was the question not clear? Because typically a silence, you know, it will it will initiate what we call repair of some kind. So it might be that I ask you a question, there's a silence, and I immediately redesign the question, or I issue an invitation and there's a silence and so I immediately say well so a concrete example you know you ask someone do you want to come for dinner friday there's a silence so we're so tuned into it that we immediately pick up that they're not going to respond within those sort of split seconds and we say all saturday so we're very attuned to how our interlocutors are responding to the actions that we are producing as they come out and that's why like you're you're nodding as i'm saying these things so you you know I almost don't have to finish this and you know where I'm going with this action and that's how we're able to actually be so fast and that so, you, know, you know so you're we're preparing our responses you know so that they're precision time within 10th of a second how do we manage to do that it's, it's because of the f- sort of familiarity with a lot of actions that we're actually doing in our interactions which makes anything a delay and you know a classic another one is you know saying i love you you know that you've got to be like really rapidly coming back (laughs) you know any kind of 31 second delay on does my does my bum look big in this that has to be quick (laughs) you know two seconds is is a problem
0: (laughs) yeah another thing that you see amongst and this is me reflecting on me a long time ago uh new podcasters especially is that they'll ask a question and then they'll give the guest a menu of options that they can choose from So, Liz, you know, why did you get into studying conversational analysis? Was this something that you did as a kid or was, you know, was it? And to me, what I used to feel was sort of this visceral discomfort around asking a question and not having the confidence that the question was sufficiently interesting that I could just sit and just let the other person Marinade in the question. Because sometimes it's a difficult question. Sometimes it's maybe a question that they don't often think about or haven't heard before. But then by giving this sort of menu of options, I start to lead them toward... And Mm -hmm. it's a really dumb idea for podcasters to do because what you're doing is you're, you're offering, especially if it's an open question, you're offering the guest the opportunity to pick from every single potential question on the planet. And then if you give them two options, they have to either pick one or the other, say why it's not the first or the second one, or somehow break the convention that you've already constrained over them and go, well, actually, it's neither. And very rarely will you ever hear someone say it's neither. Most of the time, the guest, unless they're super disagreeable, is just going to kind of take one of your suggested answers for them and then rework that into what they would have said in any case. But it's it's yeah. it's mostly, in my experience, it's mostly about the comfort of question, stop, silence.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that you raise that because there are you see that in particular settings where it's both surprising and really matters and is consequential. So if you've got a list of questions that you're going to ask somebody in some settings, your list of questions is quite formal. It's a diagnostic instrument, for example, or it's it's a police interview or it's somehow a regulated kind of conversation where there's guidance and some standard things. It's a standardised survey. You're meant to ask the same question in the same way over and over again. What researchers in my field show is that it's actually really difficult to, first of all, ask a question that is even an open, you know, a a WH kind of open ended sort of question or a a yes, no kind of question, um, which Again, a bit like, you know, do you have Wi-Fi? That isn't a yes, no question. That requires a bit more. So so open and, you know, this, this idea of open and close is, is a little bit of a myth, but just sticking to this idea that you can just, let's say, read out a list of questions without embellishing them, without going um, halfway through, without tweaking them slightly. And so people are very surprised when they see what they imagine is a standardised instrument, standardised experimental instructions in a laboratory, standardised police interview, whatever it might be. And then you just imagine that they, that's, how they, that's how they work then. There is the law, there is a script, there is a list of questions, but it's uh, remarkable how the reality of those interactions just doesn't look like that. And so you can imagine situations where this is, becomes really problematic. So if it's, for example, um, I've done some research on this with colleagues in Norway, we were looking at how teachers basically do oral communication assessments, and they're meant to ask a question, the same kinds of questions to all the pupils but sometimes they do exactly what you say they ask a multiple unit question and then the pupils like well which bit of that shall I address typically you address the last bit first and then you may or may not go back to the first bit but it's but it seems just quite difficult to just stick with this one question without doing a bit more work it's the same in diagnoses so you know a psychiatric consultation there's meant to be a standardized question it'll get a bit of embellishment not for what for what reason? It's, there's some interactional imperative that makes us makes it very difficult to sound like a form. Even if you're a police officer in the situation where the law says say it like this, it doesn't quite look like that.
0: What are ums and ahs and uh, you knows used for?
1: Ums and ahs and you knows and okays—they're all different sorts of things. So they they're not interchangeable. Uh, in 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 a conversation ums and ahs are quite often thought of as errors that you want to get rid of so um like that one now mm-hmm. they can they, but they can they can they're very commonly littered through our our talk and it's quite difficult to totally erase them and but what they're doing is quite specific things so sometimes they're doing i'm thinking i'm searching for a word sometimes they are um, showing difficulty in putting this thing together they're showing an orientation to delicacy so they're doing lots of different things in in talk people are critical of others who say um and ah but when you see a transcript when people see a, a conversation analyst transcript for the first time they're quite shocked at how messy it all looks but that is how we talk um, so yeah <laughs> but they're but they're doing specific things and i would just say one thing about ums and ahs which is maybe interesting I said talked a bit earlier about people phoning the vet so i compared real pet owners telephoning the vet with mystery shoppers who don't really have a pet but are phoning up vet practices to report back on how good the service is so and you know these mystery shoppers they have quite a lot of power in a way because what they're doing is going back to the organization to say how good people are at answering the phone and so my question is how good is a mystery shopper at passing as an as a as a pet owner because no one's done that research. So we're just taking it for granted that this mystery shopper can can pass as a as a real pet owner. And the thing is from a distance, they, they totally can. But when you start to look at lots of calls, you see how different they are. So a, a very gross difference is real pet owners typically phone up to make an appointment. A mystery shopper will phone to say how much is the cost of the service. And then when the receptionist tries to give them some help, like, do you want me to book you in and sort of help you navigate calendars? The mystery shopper is like, oh, I might call back later, which is really weird. And You're thinking, what, are they, what can they possibly report back to the organisation? They gave me a cost of something. That was it. But the ums and ahs are, are so interesting in these, in these calls. So I, I'm going to totally make a mess of even saying this, but I'll try and get it right. So the mystery shopper will typically phone up and say, how much would it cost to get a dog vaccinated? A real caller will say how much would it cost if they're asking about cost how much i've got a new puppy how much would it cost to get my dog vaccinated so they don't say our dog they say my dog for a start but the mystery shopper might say how much would it cost for uh uh sorry how much would it cost for a um dog (laughs) to be vaccinated whereas the real caller is more likely to say how much would it cost for my dog to be uh, vaccinated so the ers are in different places And what's that about? I mean, I don't know. I don't have enough data to really address the question, but what it shows us is that the ums and ahs aren't randomly splattered everywhere. They are, when you look at enough of them, they're doing particular bits of work in particular ways. And it's quite fascinating if you're someone like me to figure out what that's doing. I read a
0: blog post not long ago that was talking about the relative interpretation of people who either used silences or ums and filler words in between on whether they were seen as more or less intelligent and I can't remember what the outcomes of that study were. Do you Have you ever looked at this stuff?
1: I haven't seen that but I, I, I can imagine that the outcome was that the people who say um and are, are judged to be less intelligent because that would be the stereotype. But so I can't remember
0: <laughs> I feel like I feel like it wasn't quite as simple as that I feel like the results were more along the lines of what you do which is pretty much everything's contextual it's more to do with the flow of the conversation anyway because somebody that's using silence is actually showing that they have confidence to be able to let that sit and Mm. that they're maybe being more considered with what it is that they say so i guess it's it's much more colorful speaking of filler words why is everybody saying the word like i don't
1: know (laughs) it's the one this is come on yeah, no, this it's... is
0: you this is right in the middle of your wheelhouse why why are we cursed yeah. with this word
1: i haven't studied it but it is something that maybe i should start analyzing i mean obviously people put it in in place of say um or or or, or an action so she was like he was like mm. and it quite comes mm. before a quote before reported speech it can come before a reported action so it's definitely doing some kind of Preface to describing the words, conduct, behavior of other people. Um, I don't know why it's so common. It's a generational thing, but I'm but like like lots of words. You know, I I definitely say stuff that my mum doesn't, and you know, I I say stuff that my students don't, and we we you know things just be, sort of come in and out of of common usage and that's just language language is alive it grows it changes uh one of my favorite things to do is have a look at at, uh if you just google any word it will give you a it will give you a dictionary definition but it also give you use over time so for example if you look at marvelous you know marvelous i don't know which way this is going to go on your screen but you know marvelous has dropped off a lot in usage but awesome has increased you know and and you can start to see the people who might be thinking oh we need to rescue marvelous you know that's that's a great word And and but then you know people are saying awesome and that's hard to resist so yeah language changes all the time and i think the important thing is to try not to put any kind of value judgment on this idea that saying like has something to do with that person's character because again as soon as you start to look at transcripts of people actually talking politicians you know everybody you can show a lot of mess and repair, error, speech perturbations, ums and ahs and everything in, in pretty much anyone's conversation. I
0: saw a transcript that you'd done, I think, of Boris Johnson trying to give mm. a pretty short speech, and it just looks like someone's thrown alphabet spaghetti down on a piece of paper. It's It's not very slick at all, and you think, this person yeah. has literally been elected to the highest position of power below the yeah. Queen in the united kingdom and he Mm. he basically can't speak when you read it out
1: yeah absolutely and i mean there is some of that is just kind of standard and normal like i was saying you know we're, we're much messier it seems when you see it all written down and transcribed um but yeah sometimes it can be interesting to really try to be be precise about the mess especially when you know if someone's judged to be a great orator for example or they sort of pride themselves on speaking latin and dropping that into an interaction and then show actually it's quite messy yeah but there's only so much of some people's voices you can take (laughs) in your in your ear because you have to go over you know it takes a long time to do the transcription so yeah
0: yes i bet and well, i suppose some people kind of play into it right so i've got a friend rory sutherland who is kind of a big gruff british man and talks like this and everything's a bit shit isn't it uh, and the way that he speaks, I find incredibly charming. He'll sort of, well, you, you, you know, create it, And he'll add in these elements. But for him, it's part of, I, I find it completely part of the charm yeah. that he'll pontificate with noise for a little bit and then deliver some amazing insight. And I think that that goes back to what you were saying before about the fact that it's so contextual the fact is that how is this person delivering it with everything else as well? And speaking of that, there's a common held belief that some huge percentage of our communication is nonverbal. is that true?
1: So if we, yeah, this, this is a great communication myth, very easily busted. So if you look, if you Google this, you'll see lots of examples of a pie chart and the pie chart will tell you that communication is 93% percent nonverbal and 7% verbal. So if I now turned off the audio, this podcast would make sense still for 93 percent of the time. We immediately know that, that can't be true. But and, and and you know, it's very easy to, to sort of make that myth fall over. So, for example, if, if the podcast, you're just listening to it on audio, how come radio is so popular if 93 percent of communication is nonverbal? How do we ever speak in the dark? How do you have a conversation when someone's downstairs and you're calling up and down? So obviously this doesn't really make sense if you go to a, another country and it's a different language. You know, like if you go to France and you don't speak French, you should be able to get by 93 percent of the time. So this it just doesn't really make any sense. But it's so compelling. And people do love a good statistic and a nice pie chart and they feel like, wow, I've really learned this thing. And it definitely makes sense. But one of the even nicer things about that particular communication myth is that the author of some of the original studies albert morabian himself has tried to bust the myth and sort of say how irritated he is by the sort of he he calls them something like self-styled communication consultant gurus who sort of stick this on pie charts and it wasn't what he found it was something else it was more complicated whatever whatever um but i mean i've been in lots of events you know where people are talking about this stuff and they just trot it out and or, again almost always I just don't say anything because it's just it seems petty to say this is rubbish but okay then or it, you just have to let it go but it but it, it's clearly wrong you only have to think about it for like two seconds to think yeah that can't be right
0: is body language stuff bollocks as well then if I look up into the right if I cross my <laughs> arms if I start mirroring your posture and stuff like that how, how much truthfulness is in that
1: so obviously our bodies our gestures our gaze and all of those things are all working in aggregate to get things done so if you know if somebody is you know goes past in front of your camera and they might do that that might mean do you want a drink and there's no words needed we know what that means but of course you can't just do that like I can't do that to you now and like how you know how how are you going to get me that drink it's not going to happen so if you think about something like a request depending on what you're asking for who you're asking your your entitlement to ask for it their obligation to fulfill the request um how important it all is we will design our requests differently and depending on these sort of in the resources that we have to interact we will deploy them as well but of course you know doing things with our bodies and our heads and our eyes is really important and to give you one example of of this totally silent second long interaction it's coming back from Scotland on the train a few years ago and I got on Edinburgh and the train was semi-empty then I had a ticket got on got my seat and then gradually you know coming all the way back down to the East Midlands it gets busier and busier and busier got rowdier I think there had been football I'm not sure but the train got really busy really rowdy very crowded and a bunch of blokes got on they were obviously quite drunk and don't know what their team had happened but you know it it was rowdy and it it had that sense of like not sure where this is going and obviously you know for me sitting there I'm just thinking just read my book not don't make eye contact just hope it'll all be fine but there's a woman stood at the end of the carriage so I'm sort of sat halfway down the carriage and there's a woman at the end of the carriage and we just look at each other for a split second well you know maybe a second and in that moment we tell each other we're we we're seeing the situation, we'll just keep an eye on each other and you know i I don't know who she is, never saw her again. nothing happened. It was all okay, but in that moment, you know some you you're doing something and that's just a a look but of course, how do you turn a look into a l- into a look you know you have to even we we're even tacitly you know we're not aware of it, but we're calibrating our gaze so carefully that we know what a look is versus when we're talking and we're, you know, looking to the right, lying, looking to the left, not like whatever it might be. But, it, you know, those things I think generally don't have much evidence behind them at all, because it's actually really difficult to assess that kind of look to the right, look to the left. Is this lying? Is this, flirt? you know, what, what are these things? Because they're almost never studied in natural settings. And that is the sort of the USP of, my field, we look at real interaction where the stakes are real, whatever they are for people in the wild, not simulated. We don't look at interaction in the laboratory. We don't ask people about their interactions. And that's very important to the kind of work that, that we do in conversation analysis.
0: I saw that a ton of psychological studies have just been put close to the chopping block. Uh, uh, power poses uh nudging was in there as well a bunch of stuff um that was really really struggling to replicate and I think that one of the big questions that was being asked there was around the fact that look in a naturalistic setting this yeah. just it it's very very difficult for us to get this, but okay, so how are you going to study it if it study if it's outside of the laboratory and is this you know cultural conditioning masquerading as human nature? How do you separate mm-hmm. out the cultural conditioning from something that's more inherent i mean that's It is an interesting one. I remember seeing this meme ages ago that was um, the look that you give old people when you walk past them on the street as a teenager to let them know that you're not a chav, and it was the (laughs) – that face. It's not a smile. It's sort of down into the sides, sort of thinning of the lips and widening of the face without opening the mouth up, and – i haven't been able to stop thinking about that meme i must have seen it two years ago because it's completely true i I have no idea there's no name for what that greeting emotion is it's not a hello it's it's actually something to do with like a i'm okay and you're okay maybe i I don't know do you know the thing that i mean do you know the dynamic i'm talking about
1: yeah absolutely i i mean i'm i'm probably phoneticians could give the answer to this because they're very interested in somebody who studies the way speech is produced, including things like the difference, let's say the difference between going yeah and yep. <laughs> and something about the closing of the yep. We, we all know when we've been yep rather than yet. Uh, so I think that there is something about a closed mouth smile. It's like the most neutral, but friendly thing. I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm not going to do anything. I'm keeping my mouth closed. Yeah, I think that there, there is something in, in sh- showing I'm doing nothing, if you like. Yes, yeah, and, and very actually, passive. Yeah, so, so I, I have a colleague and she gets her students to, as a kind of experiment, go on to, you know go somewhere on campus and then do nothing. How do you do nothing in a way that doesn't attract attention? And of course, and you're not allowed to look at your phone, you know, how do you do it? And it's how do you, how do you stand at the bar? And do I am waiting to be served versus I'm at the bar but I don't actually want to be served yet because I'm waiting for someone and we have really, you know, loads of ways of doing nothing in an innocent way. (laughs) How do you how do you do nothing in an innocent way on the street? Well, we could do it. (laughs) So it's trying to it's the same sort of thing. How do you show somebody that you're not threatening and you know you've you've picked out that meme and I think that's yeah, that's spot on.
0: What about dating and first date do's and don'ts what are some of the biggest things that people should and shouldn't do
1: um i i did do some research 10 or so years ago on speed dating it's my one and only foray into it because i thought oh god i don't want to be the professor of dating actually (laughs) and the thing that i was particularly interested in was this is this again this was this was before things like first dates on the television which i've never seen i keep thinking i should go and look at those but you never know what the raw data is like so so i was looking at people on speed dates they were in a particular age bracket 30 to 45 and it was you know what do they what seems to be the components of a date that runs smoothly I didn't know what happened you know into the future of their lives Um, and some of those things are you know quite obvious actually ask questions that aren't weird questions that aren't too intrusive that haven't been learned from a little book you know about you know ask them like what's what's the most dramatic thing that's ever happened to you is your first question because that would be a really interesting topic actually some you know you need to do those mundane things first and just sort of just just turn by turn feel your way into the action into the interaction and just that's what we're doing in conversation we're constantly taking our cues from the other person so it's a bit like being that vet receptionist the one who notices this one doesn't want to talk about their dog versus this one definitely does so all of those kinds of things are are, are the same I I think having a topic um, you know finding a topic that you can expand for more than two or three turns is important I've just started to do some work on first dates on messenger and whatsapp you know maybe the the modern way to do it so i'm looking at things like rapid 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 message 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 silence (laughs) you know so you so you can see and i've got i've got these people from early dating all the way through to like the development of when they're an item and then a bit more and you can see some painful stuff like yeah message 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 you know, all going smoothly, and then there'll be a delay. And then the first person is like, "Mm, how long are they going to wait before they try again to restart the encounter? And I don't know, even just reading these things that I've never met the people that's just text messages, but you sort of feel feel the pain of the person who's like, "Mm, they haven't said anything, shall I try again? And eventually, you know, can't triple text, you can double text, but you can't triple text. Is that right? I also had a PhD student a few years ago who Screenshotted, screen recorded people doing Facebook Messenger chat so we could see what they were writing before they sent it. And, you know, some of these conversations were hilarious because you'd see someone, the cursor would be blinking there on, on the screen and they'd be typing X, 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 blinker, you know, and then delete. <laughs> and then, like, maybe a sticky out tongue emoji, delete. And then, like, what did they end up sending? And you know, I'm thinking, what would that look like in in a real conversation if it was face to face? That would be quite a strange kind of like, are we going for like cheek cheek? What What are we doing in this way? We're we greeting each other or signing off? Uh, so yeah, it's but but what you see in though in her particular uh, work is the same kinds of things that you see in in spoken interaction. It's just that you can't hide the fact that you are starting it one way and then deleting it and doing something else, whereas in fact our conversation is full of things like, um, in, from my, from the dating stuff that I looked at, there's these moments that always happen, which is about whether or not the person's been married before. So this is this demographic, 30 to 45. And so um, one of the things that always comes up, either because people disclose it tacitly, like saying things like, I was divorced or I've got kids. So they give away some of their relationship history. But if they don't, then it becomes a bit of an elephant. like Like, okay, who's... am I going to ask you what your relationship history is? How am I going to figure this out? And what I found was that women want, in these dates, this is, you know, 10 years ago, it's a particular cohort. Women ask men, so what's your relationship history then? They want to know, and men are accountable if they can't say at age, whatever, you know, 40, that they've had some kind of commitment in the past. Whereas I have to say in my small data set, it didn't matter the other way around. (laughs) So men didn't ask the question and they didn't, you know, they weren't bothered if a woman hadn't had that kind of, demonstrable commitment previously but i've got this this one case where the the woman is is saying you know so if you've got so so you've got no any kids like i I probably can't say that you've got no kids on the basis of everything you've told me so far which sounds very sad and you see these little 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 corrections as the question comes out so if you were in writing them down you could it would look like so no kids then delete got any kids
0: yes yeah 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 well i suppose that
1: You wouldn't see the presumption. And then, oh, I suppose I should ask you this, even though I definitely know by now. I can tell, you know, whatever.
0: When you're studying chats, you're Mm -hmm. only studying what people ended up pressing send on. But the number of times that you go back and forth. And then you have to think that there's one layer further up from that, which you need to actually speak to our mate Elon about Mm -hmm. to get Neuralink, which is what were the things that arose in consciousness but didn't make Mm -hmm. it to your thumbs? Yeah, right. Because there's a bunch of things that you could have said that this note, this note, this note, that note, still no. I wrote it, but no. And then this yeah. is the one that I end up pressing send on.
1: Yeah. Which, when you think about it, how on earth we actually do have these rapid conversations that are moving at such a pace—it's quite amazing. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know, you know, what's going up? What's going on upstream? Because my, you know, again, my field is dedicated to what some colleagues have called the rich surface of interaction. So I don't know what's going on in your under your school you don't know what's going on under under my school we've only got what each other says and does as evidence of anything so that's that's where conversation analysis focuses which is different I'm I'm a psychologist by background but I'm not interested I mean I am interested as an ordinary human being but I don't try to ascribe what someone really thought or whether they really are this thing because what I'm looking at is how people are attending to am I coming off this way or not or I didn't want to come off this way I need to attend to the way I'm coming across or if people say things like i don't know is that i'm not interested in whether they really know or not some somewhere in their brain and how you'll get to that it's more like why is someone saying i don't know at this point is it actually to try and avoid answering the question is it is it to account for not being able to answer a question what is that doing right now because when you again when you look at these words and how they're placed in sequences like this it's quite hard to just track them all back to some sense of what's going on cognitively because you can see that people are doing doing things that it's not just about my brain to your brain it's also about how am I coming across and 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 fixing this and am I saying things that make sense do I need to keep tweaking and keep keep kind of turning the the spanner a little bit until I've got the thing and we have sort of we have shared understanding of this thing that we're both doing together in this interaction
0: also there's certain people whose personalities don't lend themselves to taking that feedback particularly well or at all and everyone's got that friend that just continues to bloviate and they're just plugging away and plugging away and sometimes they're useful if you're out on a, a night out or whatever and you just want someone it's like background it's wittering you know it's just the birds <laughs> yeah. outside you go yeah yeah there, there goes bruce he's just continuing to churn on and on and on uh, and then you have other people who are uh, overly receptive right to the awkwardness to potential silences to whatever um mm-hmm. You studied, am I right in thinking that you looked at hostage negotiations and suicide hotlines and stuff like that as well? What do you learn from yeah. that?
1: Well, first of all, it, you know, it's it's an amazing job that the crisis negotiators do. So I, I looked particularly at suicide crisis negotiation. So these are the recordings. So, so I was given access to the recordings uh, by the police negotiators who record at the scene as part of the job so again the data are kind of already there they're like found materials because they're recorded i'm not you know i'm not sure if anyone really ever looks at them again but i this is this was the job and you know the first time you start to listen to these recordings you know very typically it's someone who's on a roof threatening to jump or threatening to asphyxiate themselves to do some serious harm to themselves and obviously it's, you know it's it's the most difficult data that I've ever analysed and you also feel a real sense of responsibility because at the end of the research I'm going to go back to the negotiators and tell them what what I found um and not 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 do training because I don't like to think of it quite as training but basically what I'm doing is showing them what they're doing that really is effective and some and showing them the things or hoping that they will see from the 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 clips that I will then choose to, to sort of play anonymized and play out for them hoping that they will come to the conclusion that that isn't an isn't an effective strategy but mostly it's about your colleague who is amazing at their job or is very experienced what is it that they're actually doing because one of the things that i you know as a total novice into this environment hadn't realized at the start was that a lot of these negotiations have a successful outcome in that the person comes down safely so i was went into it thinking you know I had no idea what the statistics were. You would be listening
0: to a ton of people's last rites, basically.
1: Exactly, yeah, and that isn't how it is. So, So then what I'm interested in is, okay, along this two-hour, four-hour, nine-hour negotiation, what are the turning points so that we can think about, What are the the negotiators doing to get that person to, let's say, a more physically safe space on the roof so that they can really push the negotiation? So a lot of the first part is how do we get someone from a precarious, very precarious situation where they might fall, even if they now don't intend to commit suicide, to somewhere much more physically stable so that we can then really start to, you know, support them, encourage them and so on. So that was that, and and a couple of things that I found that were very interesting. Me and my colleague um, Ryan Sickfeld, we we looked at basic requests for dialogue. So any negotiation requires people to take turns in in conversation. That's that's what it is. It's nothing else. You don't know anything about the person typically so you've got no background about that you might think you're interested in a psychologist like you You don't know about their suicidal ideation you don't know about their intent you don't know anything about them They're they're a stranger so you can't sort of assess their background and then on the basis of that develop a strategy your strategy has to evolve on the basis of the evidence of everything that they say so what you want is to think right everything they say is staying alive so every time the person says something they're choosing to stay alive and not jump so that's good so how do we keep them taking turns but also how do we keep them taking turns that are positive rather than negative negative? and that's what we were after and so one of the first jobs is the negotiator arrives on the scene you have to expect resistance because if you do something so strong in a way or such a take a, such a strong stance that you're on a roof and you're going to jump it's not the case that the negotiator comes and says really want you to come down buddy Oh, okay then, because people are in in that situation are again surprisingly logical, very clued into how rational they appear. So they're not going to just change their mind like that. There has to be a negotiation. It's going to take time. It has to, otherwise people don't look. You know, if you take a stance, you don't just change your mind. People want to be seen as consist- consistent. So you see that. So how do you get someone talking? And the very one of the very first things we found was that negotiators will typically say. Can we talk about how you are? And in this one nice example that I've got, the negotiator says, can we talk about how you are? And when you just show that line, I then show that the next line is 0.7 seconds. So you think, okay, that's not going to be, not going to start talking, you're going to see resistance. And people think that they're going to say, I don't want to talk about how I am. They focus on, they're not going to want to talk about how they are to this stranger. But in fact, what happens next is that the person in crisis says, no, I don't want to talk. So they don't attend to the how you are. They just like, I don't want to talk this thing, this, this particular thing that you've asked me to do. And then they put the phone down in this case. So that's that's the end. But now the negotiator's got to try again. So you just see these little natural experiments in which the negotiator can't give up. They've got to try again. And in the trying again, you see, well, what is it that's working? And what we found was that dialogue proposals that are built from the verb to talk get resistance they get resistance like, what's the point in talking? Talking doesn't do anything. And, and they actually orient to this notion that talking doesn't really do things. Whereas when negotiators say something like, I want to speak to you and let's sort things out. So speak gets traction. It doesn't get resistance. People don't say things like, actions speak louder than speak. We don't have that in our idiom. We don't have the same sense that speaking doesn't do anything. And you can, you know, walk Talk the walk. The speak is, is cheap exactly we don't we don't say it that same way and 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 so we found and this was generally my field is thought of as qualitative research where you look at you know in in a lot of detail at small number of cases but because we were so surprised by this we we went through and coded all the data did some statistical analysis as well and basically found that yeah speak gets far less resistance and faster traction than asking to talk and i suppose the nice coda to all of this is that we then went back and showed this to the negotiators in the uk and they were able to sort of get start that start it faster it's also nice to show people things that is already part of somebody else's natural practice we're not telling them to do something that's weird or not part of anybody's or, or experience and what they were just kind of doing naturally somehow but it also shows you that Verbs make a difference. So back to the point earlier about being pushed and pulled around by language, we're not really aware. We also typically think that this person's going to do it or not. It doesn't matter what words you say. But but frankly, if you don't look at the actual encounters, you you not you can't say that you you can't say that words don't make a difference if you're not prepared to actually study those words in those real situations. And and so that's what we found.
0: Didn't you have another example about bathroom towels? In hotels
1: yeah that well that was that was me thinking about this idea of nudge because of course you know it's a very you know very it, it's a pop kind of behavioral science kind of concept it's not my type of thing Might it's not my type of work but I think it is interesting that in this particular study I can't remember the, the authors now but it was basically you know people recycle more um, with, with the wording of the sign in one direction rather than another. Um, I can't remember what that is now even. But, but really, my point was, let's look at the language much more than the, the sort of overall message that it's pushing towards. So one of them was about, I think it was something like, you know, please recycle your towels versus something like, you know, 55% of people in this who stayed in this room, your room, uh, recycled them. It was something like that, a more personalised message, drawing on social norms. And there's all sorts of theory you can put around that. But for me, what I'd be interested in is looking at the way we are pushed and pulled around by language in a not malevolent way. Sometimes it is malevolent, but but actually words make a difference. So asking someone to to speak rather than talk is doing something it's it's sort of tilting the the outcome in some way i've also shown that if you ask someone if they're willing to do something that they previously resisted doing a bit then they're more likely to say yes than if you ask them if they're interested in doing it or if they would like to do it there's a bit of a caveat here which is that willing is quite a heavy thing to ask someone if they're willing to do it so you don't say to your partner would you be willing to put the bins out because it kind of implies well what do you mean willing Like, like that's quite heavy but 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 actually, willing gets these turnarounds in ways that don't other other verbs don't get. So you can start to see that words in turns make a difference to the very next thing that happens. Mm. And so I, I I mean that that isn't the kind of thing that that nudge behavioral scientists typically look at. But I think it's very interesting the sort of natural way in which we are, you know, shaped by language all the time. So going back to those how are yous and the this 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 recording of a conversation where it's two women on the phone and they go debbie shelly what do you, what do you you know what's going on and and you can see that they're just immediately not fi- they're not they're finding it impossible to resist the 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 conflict straight away how do you not do that it's very hard to immediately not engage in the frame that someone has set up so as soon as you accept that you you realize god we we you know how do you not get involved in that argument how do you resist that you know whatever whatever it
0: might be yeah I've got a friend Alex Hormozy and he did a video not long ago talking about how he always convinces his missus to go to Cheesecake Factory uh, and he frames the question in the same way that he used to do it on sales calls and instead of asking if she wants to go to Cheesecake Factory or saying that he wants to go he says would you be opposed to going to Cheesecake Factory And obviously, like, well, I'm not opposed to going to Cheesecake Factory. I'd just rather go somewhere else. But that's pretty effortful in terms of a response to go to. And if you've already got, well, I... I would like to go to Cheesecake Factory and you are not opposed. Therefore, if I have a preference and you have no preference, well, no, I do have a preference. I just haven't had my turn to say it yet. And yeah, yeah I, that was really interesting. Another person I've had, Chris Voss on the show, who you may be familiar with, the ex-head negotiator of the FBI's anti-terrorism unit. Uh, mm-hmm. And he has this really cool idea around getting a that's right from hostages. Uh, sorry, from hostage takers. Hostages can't say anything. And... He was telling this story about um, he was coaching one of his guys through a very long uh, hostage negotiation that was happening maybe in the Philippines or in Vietnam or something like that uh, a decade ago. And this guy had had these people for ages, and they knew that the statistics suggest that if it gets past a particular amount of time that people start being shot, this is not good, and they were just not getting anywhere. And Chris said to his understudy, you need to get a that's right from him today. And that that's right is about steelmanning the other person's position. It's about showing them that you understand precisely why they feel the way that they do. So this guy went through a huge, big, long spiel of, I understand that you feel like these imperial colonialist powers have come back and they've taken your country's sovereignty and that you're holding these tourists. I know that you feel this and I know that that's and da, 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 this big, sort of long, very, sort of, um protracted diatribe about how this is how you feel and blah, 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 blah. Is that right? And he got a, that's right from him. And then within 24 hours, this guy had released all of the different hostages, but he fled. So they never ended up catching this dude. And then apparently about a month later, the hostage negotiator, Chris's understudy, received a phone call from a completely anonymous number. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that if you hadn't spoken to me that day, every single one of those hostages would have been killed. I'm not sure what you did but your bosses need to be very thankful for you for having done it. However, if I ever see you on the street, I'm going to kill you in cold blood. And I was like, oh, my God. It's such an intense story. Um, But, yeah, yeah, the idea around somebody that maybe feels mistreated, misunderstood, maligned, whatever it might be, showing them that you appreciate the position that they're coming from, it seems to be a powerful tool.
1: Yeah, I suppose we, we call it empathy and it's really hard to get right because, of course, the risk of telling people or, or saying, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is that right? If you don't get it right and you're you know, no idiot,
0: when, everyone's dead now.
1: It, exactly. So this is why, you know, you have to really what, what I've seen in, in those suicide negotiations is that there is a point where the negotiator has sort of built up or at least they, they sort of show this by what they do. They've, they've built up enough evidence data from what's been said so far to be able to do that kind of thing at the right point in time and how much they misfire if they come too early and and no that's not how i feel and and then you're just sort of down the spiral so so yeah um the, the other thing that i i particularly noticed in the negotiations but i've seen this in in other situations as well any any place where people start from quite different stances so do you want to do this thing? I don't want to do this thing, or I didn't even ask you to ask me about this thing. So you know, a sale, a sales call is a, is a, is another example, but a, a crisis negotiation is another. And anybody who's being, try, you know, you're trying to get someone to do the thing that they've actively resisted, and it's about claiming independence. So again, the negotiators that were really effective weren't doing things like i really care about you i really understand because it's you can almost write the script it's like well you don't know me you, you don't care about me you don't you don't know me you can't say these things whereas the negotiators that were, were getting the outcomes sort of more swiftly with less friction were saying things like how did you get up there because if you say how did you get up there it's it's a question that is Answering it doesn't require any kind of compromise because the person already decided to do that. So they're they're talking about things that they have already decided to do. And so the sort of interactional foundations of the person coming down and that safe outcome is switching from, if you like, textbook showing care and empathy and help and sort of more softly, softly to actually moving towards something that is a bit more direct, like speak is it doesn't sound as friendly as talk but it's actually what happens better um we also see that they if they offer to help that gets resistance like you can't help me whereas if if they say something like let's see we can sort things out that gets more traction because it's about action it's not about the soft things that you might imagine are working and then eventually what you see is again get the person in crisis to start talking about things they already decided to do today and and get them talking about them deciding to do things and that seems to be the start of the successful outcome of the interaction
0: chris has another one where he says that a lot of the time in relationships if you feel like there's something that's off with your partner people's go-to is what's wrong what's wrong what's wrong and his advice the a better approach he suggests is to say it seems like there's something on your mind Mm. and Mm. that again is It's so interesting, your work. I mean, you must find it incredibly fascinating because it's at the intersection of a bunch of different things. It's not just linguistics. It's not just what the words mean. Mm -hmm. It's culturally, how is this word in the milieu beyond the definition of the word then how's it been delivered, then how long's the wait been, then what's the particular stage of relationship that you have between Mm -hmm. what you're coming in with your priors, what are the expectations? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's a very multifaceted thing. And then to take that down and put it onto a piece of paper and then then to reverse engineer that back around, uh, Mm. it seems pretty complex. It seems like an incredibly complex uh, science, art form. Mm.
1: I mean, it it is complicated, but in a way it's – what I'm doing is – is explaining and showing people things that people are often, you know, often because I'm working not just on dating, but, you know, the more sort of serious and institutional kinds of environments that I've mentioned, showing people things that they're not aware that they're doing and how sometimes they're doing it incredibly well and sometimes people like them, you know, I, are doing this thing not so well at all. And it, it's a bit like proofreading, you know. It's, you can't proofread yourself, but as soon as you give it to somebody else and look over their shoulder, you can see all, your, all, all the errors. And... And so it is it is complex, but it's not like there's a huge conceptual gap between what I'm doing and the phenomenon. It's not like I'm studying black holes where it, like, they don't exist for people to understand them. They, whereas language communication exists for people to live life and get everything done. And sometimes it can be a challenge because we've all got our lifetimes experience and anecdata of how we talk. But what I do know as a, as a conversation analyst is that how we think we talk isn't quite how we talk. And sometimes the things that we think are effective aren't quite right. Or we can get a sense that that conversation didn't go very well, but I can show you how exactly where. And then the challenge is to show that it's not just a one off. It's a systematic thing that people tend to do it this way. And it tends to immediately derail, create a friction, create a, something you're going to fix. And you might get back on track, but you might not at the end of that, that conversation.
0: Have you looked at how easy it is for people to change their patterns, the speech patterns and the sort of words that they use and things like that?
1: So I do a lot of training with the research findings. Um, so some And some of those findings are easier for people to see their way to doing than others. Um, so talk and speak and help and sort those words that negotiators use typically at the start can can be changed if you like people can start with you know i want to speak to you and get things sorted out rather than i'm just here to talk and try to help and you can change that fairly easily simply because they typically happen at the start of the encounter where it is the negotiator doing the talking heavily scripted and you haven't got into the kind of back forth back forth at this point so so there is that on the one hand then there are other there are other things that, you again, are, are easier to for people to change when they are, let's say, delivering a package of information that you can see works really well or doesn't go down so well. So one of the very first things that I did when I was sort of going from, oh, this is interesting from a research point of view to mm, maybe the people who I'm studying would also find this useful was looking at mediators. So people who are trying to help conflict without the courts involved. How do they have that initial conversation with people who might become their client at the end of this conversation? Yes or no. How do they describe what mediation is? Because hardly anyone's heard of it. They typically phone a mediation service because they've got a problem. They've got a neighbor dispute or a workplace dispute, but they don't really want to ever see this person again. In fact, what they're phoning for is, you know, they, they start things like. I've just phoned a lawyer and they've given me your number or I've just phoned the police and they've put me on to you or I've just phoned the council. And so this person wants their neighbor evicted, arrested, you know, whatever. So then a mediator is going to explain mediation, which is, you know, we're going to get you together in a room and it's all going to be fine. It's not a very easy sales pitch. But at some point in this conversation, there's going to be a moment where the mediator will have heard the problem and then say something like, so let me tell you a bit about mediation. And then they deliver a package of information about what mediation is. And at this point, you see the, the outcome start to split. So these are the things that you can train people to do because no one's born knowing how to explain mediation. And what I found was that if you explain it as a sort of ethos, a philosophy, we're impartial, we don't take someone's side, we don't judge. People are quite turned off by that. But if you explain there's a process, this happens and then this happens and this happens, then people are more bought into the idea that things are going to change because you've you've laid out a process and I can see myself slotting into that process. So those are the kinds of things that you can you can change because you you just train your staff to explain what it is your organization does in a different way. I suppose I would just say though that that um everything that I learn that is effective is based in what someone is doing and a lot of people aren't doing it and whether or not you can really train people to 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 change their words in a moment by moment way i'm i'm not really sure um it, it, at the end of the day you need to be as good as that vet receptionist who or you know who can hear this person wants to talk about their pet i'll go with that because that's going to get me where i want to go which is get the client whereas this one they just want the information so i'll give them the information and then they might become the client that way and it's being able to do that and so we have to ask ourselves can i do that can i tell the difference between the one who wants to talk about the dog and the one who doesn't not everyone can
0: elizabeth Stoko, ladies and gentlemen if people want to check out more of the stuff that you do online and follow you where should they go
1: twitter probably um i'm at Stokoe on twitter
0: amazing liz i appreciate you
1: thank you Thank you
0: very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed. And by pressing the subscribe button, it does support the show and it makes me very happy. And it means that you won't miss an episode when they're uploaded. So just go and press subscribe. Also, don't forget that there is a 15% discount on the 6-Minute Diary by going to bit.ly slash diarywisdom in the UK using the code MW15, or in the USA, search on Amazon for the 6-Minute Diary and use the code 15minutes. You can get five free travel packs, a year's supply of vitamin D, and a 60-day money-back guarantee from Athletic Greens by going to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom, and you can get two weeks unlimited free access to Wondrium by going to wondrium.com slash Slash, modern wisdom. I'll see you next time.